Hello and welcome to the Ask the Geographer podcast series from the Department of Education and Outdoor Learning at the Royal Geographical Society with IBG. I'm Harry. In each podcast, I'll meet geographers from around the world to ask them about topical events, timely publications and geographical research. Today we are discussing river science geography with Professor Kate Heppel from the School of Geography at Queen Mary University of London. Thank you for joining us today, Kate. Can we begin by outlining who you are and what you do? Yeah, of course, Harry. I work in the School of Geography at Queen Mary University of London and I research the linkages between hydrological and biogeochemical processes in the environment. So I look at the effects that water movement and water pathways have on pollutant transport and pollutant fate. My research has considered things like um, pesticide movement to rivers, the factors that control nutrient cycles in rivers and wetlands, and interactions between different nutrients in the environment. I've also looked uh, in the past at carbon cycling and carbon storage in lowland wetland areas. Some of my recent research has focused, though, on chalk stream environments and the threats that we have to these beautiful rivers. And we were just discussing a second ago, Kate, that your focus is on a river near to where you live. Is that right? The River Chess? Yeah, that's right. That's a chalk stream, the River Chess. Fantastic. Um, Can I ask a really obvious question to start with? What distinguishes a chalk stream from other streams and rivers in the UK, aside, of course, from it having a a bed of chalk? Oh, it's not an obvious question uh, at all, or not an obvious answer. Chalk streams are internationally rare habitats. 85% of all chalk streams are in England, so we've got a really precious resource to protect. And chalk streams, they're groundwater fed. This means that the majority of water that flows in chalk streams comes from water stored in chalk aquifers under the ground. So chalk streams have what geographers call a stable flow regime. Now, this means that water levels in these rivers don't react rapidly to rainfall, like rivers, for example, on impermeable geologies, uh, maybe clay. So this relatively stable flow means that aquatic plants can grow in the water without becoming physically ripped out of the riverbed. So chalk streams really support an abundant and diverse vegetation. So that's one thing that makes them unique. The other thing is water chemistry. Chalk streams should have clear, transparent water because the water in them originates from the ground from the water stored in the chalk aquifers, and it's been filtered as it passes through these rocks. So plants in chalk streams have plenty of light to grow because of the clear water. And also there's high calcium and magnesium carbonate concentrations in the water. This is basically the dissolved chalk, and it makes these rivers an excellent habitat for invertebrates and for the larval stages of river flies, like mayflies, for example. And they're the base of the food chain for fish such as trout, and for salmon. Another aspect that makes chalk streams important in rare habitats is the temperature. So water in groundwater springs emerges from the ground at about 10 degrees centigrade. And these cool conditions are excellent for young fish and the low temperatures mean they contain good oxygen levels. Just like you and I, fish and other organisms, they need oxygen to breathe or aspire. So overall, these rivers support a really high diversity of wildlife. I've mentioned plants and fish like salmon and trout, but there's also some of our most threatened species that thrive in a healthy chalk stream, like water vole and white-clawed crayfish, for example. 
You started off by mentioning that they have a, a stable flow and that they don't react quickly to, to flood events. Does that mean that chalk uh, river basins are normally quite built up because they're more predictable? In some areas of the country they are. So the Chiltern chalk streams, uh, because they're around London in the southeast, they've got a lot of development in their in their reaches and on their floodplains. Whereas in other areas of the country, actually, they're still quite rural rivers. So a real mix, actually, for chalk streams. How important are chalk streams to local communities? Well, these rivers have a really long tradition, actually, of supporting local industries, uh, industries like watercress farming and milling as well. So they're of interest from a historical perspective. And today they're also important for recreation, for fishing, for example, and for families to enjoy. I mean, I often see families with pond dipping nets along my local chalk stream of the, the River Chess. And part of the joy of working on in that environment has been hearing how the river's been a really important part of family life and understanding how important memories of the river are to people that live in the area. That's, of course, the balance of conservation, protecting something, but also allowing people to use it at the same time, I imagine. Uh, That's absolutely it, yes. Yes, and that's really important for chalk streams because some of the issues actually relate to these structures, but they're important from a heritage perspective. What pressures are facing chalk streams, such as the River Chest that you've already mentioned? Yeah, all's not really well with many of our chalk rivers. Uh, More than three quarters of them now are failing to meet what's called good ecological status. They do seem to be in a state of decline. And there's a lot of pressures facing these streams at the moment. Many of the issues are interlinked. A good starting point is the state of the groundwater that actually provides these rivers with the water that flows in them. So these chalk streams derive over 75% of their water from the ground. But this is the same groundwater that we're using to provide us with water in our homes, which we use to wash, for food preparation and to drink. And in many areas, we're actually over abstracting this precious resource for our own use. And this can lead to low flows in the chalk rivers. So they can't support or maintain healthy ecological systems. So plants don't flourish and we see fish kills and poor habitat in the areas where there are long term low water levels. And on top of that, I imagine there are negative effects from agriculture and other human activities. Yeah, absolutely. The way that we use the land in the catchments of these rivers is really important and a really important influence on the state of our chalk streams. So one of the issues is um, sediment movement and the movement of fine sediment into chalk streams from surrounding agricultural uh, fields and from urban areas. That's problematic. So sediment accumulation in chalk streams arises from things like uh, soil loss. So when soils are bare and without vegetation cover, When it rains heavily, then that soil makes its way into our river systems. Another issue is um, the erosion of soil banks by cattle and sheep as well when they're allowed to trample on the riverbanks. Also, soils get into our rivers from the network of roads in our countrysides and in our urban areas as well. So roads and paved areas can be a source of sediment in their own right, as well as a rapid conduit by which sediment can be washed into our river systems. This sort of fine sediment is a real problem in chalk streams because chalk streams have riverbeds that are actually made up of coarse material, sort of gravel-sized material and flints. And spaces between the gravel and the flints are important hiding places for invertebrates. They, They provide them with a refuge. And they're also important for fish eggs to develop, so for salmon and for trout eggs to develop and hatch under well-oxygenated conditions. 
When fine sediment fills in all these spaces between the gravels and the flints, this prevents the supply of oxygen to the, to the riverbed. It also prevents aquatic plants from rooting properly. So it really changes the environment. We're increasingly we're finding that this sediment is carrying with it as well a pollutant load. It carries things like metals, like lead from urban environments and oils and greases from vehicles in urban areas. So the sediment's a pollutant in its own right, but also it's acting as a vector for other chemicals. And are these findings specific to the River Chess or is this uh, countrywide? So this is countrywide for chalk streams. There's this effect that was, has been called in the past chalk stream malaise. So these are sort of issues that are recognised across a lot of chalk streams. The Chilterns chalk streams, because they have this high population pressure as well, I think they see a few more of the sort of urban issues that you might not see to the same extent in some of the other chalk streams, where perhaps agricultural issues are more problematic. Do past heritage activities impact on on streams? Uh, Do they impact more in the Chilterns or in particular parts of the country? Yeah, so these chalk streams have been used widely for sort of watercress farming and for the to be a source of water mills as well. So our chalk streams generally have been heavily modified in the past. So, for example, to supply power for milling. So there's lots of areas in which channels have been artificially widened, for example. And there's physical structures like weirs, which slow down the flow of water. So when you uh, slow down the flow of water, this causes fine sediment to build up. And it means that the rivers don't necessarily have a good diversity of geomorphological features. So areas of high flow and low flow. And those areas of high flow, they clean out and flush out the gravels. So they they remove the fine sediment and improve the riverbed for aquatic use. And do we have modern day pressures from urban land use and from adapting our rivers? Or is it just heritage activity that's affecting it? No, we definitely have some some modern pressures as well. And in that, I would include the issue of sewage treatment works, particularly in the Chilterns area where the River Chess is located. So in these systems, treated sewage from sewage treatment works can form like a really significant proportion of the flow in the river. So, for example, in the Chess, about 50% of the water is treated sewage, although this gets diluted by groundwater springs as you move downstream of the sewage treatment works. But our sewage treatment works, they're not always able to cope with the amount of water that's flowing through them. So, for example, when there's heavy rain, the capacity of the sewage treatment works can be overwhelmed. To prevent sewage from backing up into our homes at this time, the water companies are allowed to let untreated sewage enter our river systems. But untreated sewage causes oxygen levels in a river to drop, which can stress fish and it can result in fish kills as well. And the untreated sewage, as well as containing lots of bacteria and viruses, also contains products from everyday household use. We're only really just starting to understand the potential impacts of mixtures of these chemicals, these household products and these uh, personal care products on the ecological health of our rivers. So this is very much an emerging and modern research area. That's that's such a shock. Um, Did I hear that right, that 50% of the water in your study area, the River Chess, is is sewage, is treated sewage. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And there's some areas in the Chilterns where most of the flow will be uh, treated sewage. It's quite a common thing in the in the southeast for us to have a significant proportion of our river flow, which is treated sewage. I noticed in the papers um, only this year, I think it was um, September, that every single river in England is polluted with only one in seven of them meeting a good ecological standard. And I wondered if I could ask you, what is the overall picture of English waterways or 
rivers across the UK? Yes, unfortunately, in my opinion, the overall picture for English waterways isn't really a good one. In the past, we've focused significant effort on tackling both what we call point and diffuse sources of pollution in our rivers. So point source, that's the end of the pipe. So that's maybe the outfall from a sewage treatment works where treated sewage enters a river system. If we define diffuse source pollution, that's where we can't identify a single source. So an example might be nitrate pollution from fertiliser application to land, where nitrate enters our river from many locations. So through groundwater, for example, or through runoff of water, but not from a single source. So we have point and we have diffuse source pollution. So we tried to tackle both. For point source pollution, there's been efforts to introduce what we call tertiary treatment to sewage treatment work. So sort of tailored treatment to reduce phosphate concentration in our rivers. And this is because phosphate's a critical nutrient in freshwaters and it's responsible for algal blooms if it's at too high a concentration. Algal blooms cause major changes to the ecology of a river system and they smother aquatic plants. They cause changes to oxygen levels and generally to the aquatic ecosystem. So water companies have added measures to reduce phosphate and also measures to reduce ammonia concentration in treated effluent. Uh, One reason for reducing ammonia is that fish are particularly sensitive to low concentrations of ammonia, which can be lethal. So we've done quite a bit to try and address point source pollution and to improve sewage treatment works. With regards to diffuse pollution sources, we focused on reducing the movement of agricultural chemicals like fertilisers and pesticides to our rivers. And we've done this through introducing legislation and by encouraging more environmentally aware farming through schemes uh, run by the government, such as catchment sensitive farming, which is run by DEFRA. Mind you, despite all this effort, we're now in a situation where water quality in our rivers isn't improving. As I said, it's such a surprise to me because I I do a fair amount of wild swimming and, and various water sports and rivers. And my perception of our rivers was that they're very clean. But obviously that is a that is a misperception. Yes. I mean, in, in England, we have these things called river basin management plans, which the Environment Agency creates and are revised every six years. The Environment Agency are the public body with responsibility for protecting and enhancing the environment and achieving sustainable development in England. And the latest river basin management plans were produced in 2015, and they run until 2021. And these plans should outline management activities that need to take place for our rivers to improve over time and reach what is called good ecological status by 2027. And that's described in a piece of legislation called the Water Framework Directive. So we have this mechanism by which our our rivers um, are hopefully getting cleaner and cleaner. The Water Framework Directive aims to result in a healthy water environment and it outlines the sort of framework and the protocols to find out whether we're achieving this. As part of the requirements for the Water Framework Directive, the Environment Agency monitors our rivers and it studies the biological and chemical components of the river systems and it reports on these on a regular basis. The latest data that was announced in September 2020 and covers the time period from 2016 to 2019 during which uh, the rivers were tested for water quality, chemically and ecologically, and tested for pollutants. And when the data for 2019 was announced, we found that, as in 2016, only 14% of our rivers are actually reaching good ecological status. And this is against a target of 75% of English rivers to be in good ecological status by 2027. So it looks like we're going to be unable to meet the target. 
And our river health is actually essentially plateaued on the basis of this metric. So although you might look at a river and think, yes, that's a good river, it's got clear water in it. Unfortunately, there are other things going on. And of course, with chemical pollution, you can't always see that pollution in the river or see subtle changes in the ecology by eye from just looking at a river system. Of course, yes. It's important for students to understand how geology affects the nature of different river flows. A river flowing over granite is very different from one that flows over chalk. Can you give us some examples of how this might be the case? Yeah, of course. So you gave the example of chalk versus granite, yeah, and those different rock types. So we have to think about the nature of those rocks first. So chalk is a porous rock. Um, it contains pores that can transmit water through it. And it also is fractured as well, actually. So water moves through the fractures in the chalk and through what we call the chalk matrix, through the pores in the chalk. So it's a permeable rock. Whereas granite, that's impermeable. So water can't flow through granite. And this really affects the hydrology of the system and therefore the river flows as well. So in a chalk area, when it rains, the water falls on the ground surface. It will infiltrate through the soil to the chalk and then through the chalk system out into the rivers so that the rivers become dominated by this groundwater signal. In a granite system, say, for example, in Scotland, like the Cairngorms area, that granite's, as we said, impermeable. So when it rains, the water falls on the ground. It moves through the soil, but it can't move through the granite. So it, it basically reaches an impermeable layer and the water will flow through the shallow soils or as overland flow to the rivers. This makes the response to rainfall really quite rapid in granite areas, whereas in chalk areas, the response to rainfall in the rivers is quite slow because there's this lag caused by the groundwater. So chalk systems and chalk river systems are dominated by groundwater flow. They're actually dominated by the level of groundwater under the, under the ground. So when groundwater's high, these rivers are flowing. When the groundwater levels drop, these rivers can actually dry up in certain areas. And this is quite a common thing to happen in chalk systems in what we call their headwaters, so near the source of these rivers. In fact, these chalk systems um, have what we call winterborne sections that are ephemeral. That means they don't flow all year round. They flow in winter, um, but in uh, summertime, uh, they start to, to dry up. So you see quite naturally these rivers being dry at some times of the year and wet at other times of the year in their headwaters. Um, often when you travel around the countryside and you're in areas that are dominated by chalk, you'll see small villages and perhaps towns called uh, bournes, for example, uh, because they have a winter bourne in their area. You mentioned in your introduction that your research seeks to find an answer to how hydrological and biochemical processes interact to remove excessive nutrients. We've just talked about not being able to see certain things in, in rivers and in, in our waterways. Can you explain why nutrients are a bad thing in a river? Yeah, of course. I mean, I'd say actually that nutrients in general are a good thing because they form part of the essential building blocks for life. And a range of different macronutrients and micronutrients is one reason why chalk stream systems are so ecologically diverse. But macronutrients, and by those I mean nitrogen and phosphorus, when they're too high in rivers, they do cause problems for a number of reasons. So the main ecological issue we think about in relation to high nitrate and phosphate concentrations is something called eutrophication. 
Eutrophication essentially means nutrient enrichment and it's associated with algal blooms. So algae can be problematic in river systems when it smothers other plants and it changes the structure of an ecosystem. Algae is actually a great food source for bacteria as it dies off and it can change the oxygen dynamics in a system. So the proliferation of bacteria, all these bacteria communities that get going to feed on the algae as a food source, they'll actually use up oxygen in a river. And this can mean low levels of oxygen at night, because at night the bacteria are producing carbon dioxide and using up oxygen. But at night plants aren't photosynthesizing, so plants aren't producing oxygen to replace that that's lost uh, by the bacteria. I have an idea to to my question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. And where do these nitrates come from? How do they enter the river chess? Is it something that we've already touched upon? Yeah, so some of the nitrate in the chess comes from fertilizers. That's been applied to the land actually many years ago. So it can take decades for nitrate to travel from the land surface down into an aquifer and then back into a groundwater fed river. So for this reason, we're still seeing the results of intensification of agriculture from the 1960s onwards. And then we were encouraged to apply more fertiliser to land to meet demands for food production. So this nitrate slowly made its way down to the aquifer and is now travelling into rivers such as the Chess. So that's one thing that always fascinates me with my work when I'm measuring this nitrate. It's actually nitrate that might have been applied to a field 40 or 50 years ago. Wow. Are there any concerns over drinking water if if we're starting to register excessive nitrates in our in our rivers? Does that also affect what we drink? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because that nitrate is coming from our, our aquifers, our aquifer systems. And in the case of nitrate, we have environmental quality standards in water that are based not only on the potential harm to ecology, but also they're set for human health reasons. So concentrations of greater than 50 milligrams per litre of nitrate in our drinking waters are thought to be harmful to human health. And it's really expensive for water companies to treat groundwater and river water to remove nitrate. But they have to do this if nitrate levels are above our legal standards. So both uh, economics and human health are additional reasons for trying to keep nitrate concentrations low in both our rivers and in our groundwater. We've talked a lot about the Chiltern Hills and we focused, of course, on the River Chess. Um, Are these issues that are specific to your research area, to the River Chess, or does chalk behave differently to other rock types and river basins around the country? Yeah, well, with respect to like excess nutrients and eutrophication in our rivers, this isn't just an issue confined to the chalk. It's an issue across the whole of the United Kingdom and globally, actually, as well. It's become especially problematic in rivers that are groundwater fed, so fed from an aquifer. So this includes areas of the country with limestone and sandstone as well. So any kind, anywhere in the country where there's a permeable rock type that holds a legacy of nitrate from past farming activities, which is now making its way into our rivers. And our other rivers, uh, for example, with the clay geologies, they also have problems of excess nutrients as well. But sometimes it's different nutrients in different parts of the country related to different land use activities. Are there any other sources of nitrates aside from agriculture? Yeah, so water from sewage treatment works is another critical source of nitrate in the River Chess. So across England and Wales as a whole, approximately 60% of the total nitrogen load in rivers is thought to be due to agricultural practice. And around 31% is thought to be due to treated effluent from sewage treatment works. 
But in the Thames region, and the chess is part of the Thames catchment, there's a slightly different balance, and that's because of the high human population. So here, the contribution from sewage treatment works actually outweighs the contribution from agriculture. Aside from agriculture, there are other pressures, of course, on our waterways. The ONS predicts that the UK population is projected to pass 70 million by mid-2031, with England's population projected to grow more quickly than the other devolved nations up until 2028. What repercussions will this have on domestic or agricultural or industrial land use? Yeah, well, if current levels of domestic water use per person continue then we'll see an increase in domestic water demand linking to increasing population. And the water companies are putting in a number of initiatives to try to reduce water demand. Water metering is one way of trying to lower demand. And that way we as consumers can track the amount of water we use and we can all do our bit to try to reduce water usage. Leakage reduction in the water networks, another important way of trying to reduce both domestic and industrial water use. I mean, for the River Chess, we've seen some really promising pledges by the water industry to reduce abstraction moving forward and to address problems of capacity with the sewage treatment works. But if population pressures increase, then my concern is that these improvements could either be made at a cost to other regions, because our drinking water has to come from somewhere. If it doesn't come from the Chess catchment, it will come from another catchment. Or perhaps we won't see significant improvements in water quality in our river because we've got increased volumes of treated wastewater entering the system. What are the positives of the current state of English hydrological systems? Well, so for me, the positive is all the great action I'm seeing from river groups and from voluntary organisations who really care for their rivers and are trying to force change. I've become really inspired by citizen science activities and their endeavours. And I'm also pleased to see more holistic thinking in catchment management, where we're trying to use natural processes to slow flows and to improve water quality. I mean, the, the poor state of our rivers is really due to a combination of different issues. And it's only by tackling these issues together that we'll be able to enact change. Each river has its own set of pressures. So local action and local knowledge is absolutely invaluable. And it has to go hand in hand with a willingness and an investment from water companies and from the government to enact change. Do you have any examples of uh, the natural processes that you mentioned that are being used now on on the River Chess or another river that you might know about? Yeah, sure. So not so much on the the River Chess, but um, there's certainly lots of movement to try and slow the flow of water through catchments to prevent flooding, for example, um, by planting trees is one way by increasing wetland areas as well. And one of the interesting questions is if we increase wetland areas and ponds in a catchment that actually can slow the flow of water down or capture water, what else does that do to water quality? So for example, there are natural processes that remove nitrate from water. If you slow flow down, if you encourage water to move through a wetland environment before it reaches the river, then you can actually remove a proportion of nitrate from the river flows as well. So there are all sorts of ways that we can introduce uh, wetland environments into our catchments, be it in upland areas or lowland areas, to try and improve water quantity and water quality issues. Mm-hmm. Like a water filter, almost a natural filter. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. A natural water filter. Yeah. Uh, finally, what are your personal thoughts about how to use our, our wild waterways and our ecological treasure troves? I, I've mentioned that I 
do a bit of wild swimming, but there's lots of other uses of rivers and lots of other things to emphasise or protect. Yeah, and I'm really heartened to see that more and more people are seeing the value of getting back in contact with nature and are feeling the mental health benefits of recreational activities linked to rural landscape, countryside and our river environments. And this seems so important at the current time. Um, a great way of understanding your local river system better uh, and contributing to the health of the ecosystem is to get involved with the local river groups, which are helping to improve the current state of our rivers through citizen science initiatives and voluntary activities like river cleanups and outfall safaris. Um, and using our rivers for recreational activities like wild swimming is one way that people are getting back in touch with nature. I suppose there are risks, though, and they're not insignificant, um, especially in areas of higher human population. So there's physical characteristics like currents and temperature. That's one aspect of risk. But I'd also urge people to get to know their local river system well and think about the biological risks from bacteria and viruses before they decide whether to undertake an activity like wild swimming in some rivers. Rivers aren't designated as bathing waters, although there's citizen-led movement at the moment to do this, to designate rivers as, as bathing waters. Because they're not designated at the moment, they don't have regular monitoring for bacteria and viruses in the same way as our coastal waters do. And you wouldn't necessarily know if a sewage treatment works, for example, has failed or is failing in your river unless you do a little bit of research. How should we move forward? We've mentioned that 50% of the river chess is treated sewage and that only 14% of English rivers seem to be ecologically healthy. We've also touched upon the UK having high levels of, of leakage in, in moving water around. What does the future look like to you? Yeah, I guess moving forward, I think we also have to view these issues through the lens of climate change and ask what will happen to our river systems in the future due to this combination of increasing population and climate change effects. So, for example, we've just been through a dry and hot summer in 2020 when water demand in the Chilterns was actually so high that a local water company struggled to meet demand. Water companies are really having to plan how to meet demand in the future using scientific projections of climate change that have been downscaled from global to regional levels. And this is quite a tough challenge. So also as population increases, we pave over more of our countryside and our front drives. We're increasing the quantity of rapid urban runoff. So we do need to start investing in sustainable urban drainage systems to slow down the flow of water and remove pollutants. And we need to increase awareness of our actions on local rivers. Finally, I think as consumers, we need to recognise that our domestic use of water does pose a problem for our rivers, not only because of water quantity issues, but also because the products that we use in our homes travel to the sewage treatment works and they're not designed to treat all of these different chemicals effectively. There's all sorts of unintended consequences of our actions, such as microplastics in rivers from our clothing and uh, products from our personal care products. So pharmaceuticals, for example, that could be harming wildlife. So we do need to raise awareness, not only in younger generations in schools, but more widely in older generations as well. So we can really fully appreciate the effects that our actions are having on rivers. And hopefully this podcast will go some way to doing that. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kate, and for sharing your research on the River Chess. Thank you, Harry, for inviting me. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the Ask the Geographer podcast series on iTunes and SoundCloud.com. Be inspired and stay informed with the Society's wide range of resources, many of which are free. School membership unlocks access to other excellent resources, including online lectures and many other tailor-made benefits for teachers and students. Access our resources at www. 
rgs.org schools.